You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. You know, I have a, a, a history of doing these things, and then I got barred from doing it with Johnny again, because I always did. I got barred from doing the David Letterman show. Uh, I ended up going back, but I think I was off for like 12 years, because I would do these things that are me. Yes. But I also understand now, maybe it comes with maturity. You know, ultimately, Johnny, David, all the, the Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, this is a job you know, day in and day out. And if I'm coming on to throw them a curveball, it could go either way. It makes it refreshing and fun because everything's planned and easy, yeah. or it's just an uncomfortable moment that they don't need. It doesn't make or break their show. And if they don't want these uncomfortable moments, then they can go, screw Howie Mandel, let's not have him back. And that happened a lot. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it represents what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Howie Mandel. I will admit, before this interview, I'm not sure I knew much about Howie Mandel's comedy. I mean, I watched Bobby's World growing up, and I loved it. And I think I just assumed he was like any other decent-sized 80s comedian. And that was not the case. First, he was huge. He was like one of the biggest comedians. It was like Eddie Murphy and Howie Mandel. Um, he like played Radio City twice back to back. He had like tons of HBO specials. He's like one of the big comedians. And the other thing is he was really weird, like organically strange. Like how did this person get on stage type of comedian? Like I was watching one of his specials. And he's just like him running around for an hour and he's shouting and the audience is shouting back at him. And he's like kind of doing crowd work, but he's kind of just mostly like using people as like weird jumping off points for like dumb bits or he has some props. It is like, it is just really present and with the audience in a way you really didn't see, especially at that time where like everyone was like a comedy club comedian, like doing what you think of as like, the worst type of airplane food jokes. And knowing that, I don't think anyone, especially his fellow comedians, would expect like the incredible longevity of his career. 
like with Deal or No Deal and America's Got Talent. And most recently, he has this podcast, Howie Mandel Does Stuff, that he co-hosts with his daughter. He's just like a completely established guy now, which is wild because he really was the strangest comedian you can imagine. So we decided with this episode to focus on one of Howie's appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, of which Howie was a frequent guest, despite being told early on that he'd never be booked. This clip is from his third or fourth appearance on the show. Um, I will note, when they come back from commercial break, Howie's whole body is smoking. I will let you imagine what that looks like. It's a bunch of smoke, and Howie Mandel, who in the 80s had a big curly mullet. So here is Howie Mandel. First guest tonight is one of the stars of NBC's hit series, St. Elsewhere. Very fine show I've seen on Wednesday nights. He's also a very inventive, funny young man. And he's going to be performing in concert this Friday night at the Beverly Theater here in Los Angeles. Would you welcome Howie Mandel. <laughs> what a day. This has been a great day. It's so weird. You're talking. I just came from the mall. I was shopping. I Were you shopping? To... <laughs> no, I was. I bought these. These are great. The guy in the joke store told me these gag glasses. Aren't they right? Aren't yeah, they right? Very funny. Yeah. Are they? Yeah. I thought so. They're only a dollar. They're only a buck. <laughs> <laughs> They're a riot. <laughs> you're deeply disturbed. You know that. I know. Well, so are my parents. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. I, I I was in the mall, I should tell you that. I yeah. heard you talking. It was scary today because of the rain and everything. Yeah. Were you, were you guys really in a mall? I was in a mall. I won't mention the mall because then they'll sue me or something. Yeah. But there was a power failure. And I was stranded for three hours on the escalator. And it wasn't going up or down. That's scary. But, no. Oh, see? That's great. You wait long enough. Yeah. Well, it was somebody called the fire department. They walked up and we all walked down. What are you wearing there? What am I wearing? Yeah, look. Uh, I, I refer to these as, well, shoes. <laughs> I'm wearing, these are shoes. They look like light, very light ski boots or something. These are uh, light ski boots. They can be used as light ski boots, but they're, uh, I refer to them as shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Nice looking. They, these are. Uh, they're red. Yeah, and right. I wear them so uh, if I get up in the middle of the night, I could uh, find my feet. Right. Because, <laughs> like, two nights ago, two nights ago, uh, this is so weird, I got up in the middle of the night uh, to stub my toe, and I slipped and went to the bathroom. <laughs> if I only had these, right, yeah. that would have never happened. Never happened, yeah. Anyways, uh, I what was shopping. I was shopping. Okay. Well, because as you know, only 30 shopping days left. Something like that. Until uh, December 29th. That's right. That's right. A little bit over, yeah. But I, I've been buying stuff. I bought. I got this. Did you ever hear a song? Did you ever hear a song? And then you you wanted to go out and buy the album. Sure. And out. I was. That happened to me. And I went out and I found it. I got the the album. I was in an elevator. 
Muzak. Muzak? Yeah, I was in the elevator and I just started to snap my fingers and I said, I gotta buy that. <laughs> Muzak, 40 years. Got you something. I wanted to buy you something because uh, oh, there you go. That's just a, that. I don't know, nothing to say about it. <laughs> just I wanted to get stinkies. It's a stinky. The characters just smell like their names. They smell like their name. This thing, you take it and you squeeze it, and it stinks. <laughs> it really works. I mean, take them home. This one, this yeah. one really stinks. This I one said, is. I went in. One, I said, this, oh, one, this one is out barnyard. This one is the, the comes barnyard. in rotten eggs, bad breath, sewer, <laughs> barnyard, outhouse, and dead fish. They were all out of sewer, so they. Oh had, well. I've... You squeeze this and it reeks. <laughs> I got about twenty of them. I yeah. I'm giving them to everybody this year. Yeah. You know. I'll, I'll use this in the car on the way home. You know. Yeah, well, that's that's what I got there. I wanted to go out and buy things because I'm pretty yeah. excited. Tomorrow is my birthday. Really? No. Oh, really? You don't have to applaud. I mean, it's yeah. easy. You can just do it every year yourself. Yeah. But uh, it's my birthday, and I'm planning stuff. I got stuff planned. It's going to be great. I'm making myself a surprise party. <laughs> I'm not telling anybody. Yeah. Tomorrow, I'm gonna come home from work and I'm gonna park way down the street so when I walk in, I don't see the cars. <laughs> and then I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna hide behind the door. And then when I walk in, I'm gonna jump out and go, surprise! Nobody knows about it. Nobody knows. I love surprises. Yeah. My wife is gonna make me something, but uh, she can't cook. She doesn't make anything. Right? That's, <laughs> it's not a joke. And it's just... <laughs> Did you know that when you got married? I didn't know that. And she yeah. bugged me for the last two months. She's bugging me. Get me a microwave. Get me a microwave. So I got her a microwave. And now she doesn't make anything, but it's faster. Yeah. Well, it's good to see you. Good to, good to see you, too. <laughs> oh. It's, I was... I wish, uh, do I have to talk about it? It's, we don't uh, have to, no. I, it's just hard I got, not to, I didn't see that until just now. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it happens. I got a, an infection on my nipple. When it just started out, started out as a little, you never, she'd never squeeze those blackheads, you know? Yeah. I got it, I got it from a toilet seat. Oh. That's the last time I, I lie on my chest on a toilet seat in a public restaurant. Well, that should teach you a lesson. Well, I wasn't going to sit on it. It was filthy. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but it's, it, should it should clear up pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it's a, a lot of that going around. There, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know other people with this? Just, I've only seen three today, but it's yeah. starting to... This is big. This is mostly in single people they have this. <laughs> I, I just, uh, were, if you meet a girl and she's got one of these, I wouldn't, I wouldn't date I would, her. No, no, no. Give you a pause for thought. You're looking well. Thank you. The show's going well? The show's going well. Everything's going well. I just got a movie. I'm gonna Did be, you? Yeah. I'm going to be doing the music box for Blake Edwards with Ted Danson. And oh, yeah, and here's another thing that's going well. I just started writing. Because it's so much quicker than printing. But I... I'm sitting here buying all this. Okay, we have to take a break and we'll come back and find out what else is going on. Okay.
What? Oh. You okay? Uh, yeah. What? What's the problem here? Uh, I don't know. I hate when that happens. Yeah. That just comes on all of a sudden like a migraine or something? That's It's like the third time this week it yeah. happens. And once in a no-smoking section. Oh, well, that's really... Yeah, that's... Uh... I hate that. Yeah. I guess it's all part of this thing. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah, I'd have that checked in. I've been trying to quit. Yeah. <laughs> I'll only smoke after sex, usually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what you to okay? say about it. I am okay. Yeah, that was okay. at, uh, I just don't hope it doesn't happen again. Has that ever happened to you? Never happened to me, no. no. Not just me. You burst into flames once, but never just smoke. Really? Yeah, I was actually on fire once. Well, I'm, I'm just kindling. Yeah. <laughs> Ed got off in a charge once. Remember when he smoking in bed or something? Oh, and yeah. Ed said the bed was on fire when he got into it, so he got yeah. off in that charge. <laughs> And I am here with Howie Mandel. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be anywhere. Oh, I, I don't think we are. I'm actually there, but my voice well, is. Well, actually, I, can you describe the room you're in? I feel like it'd be helpful for people to understand the context of what you're So I'm doing, like. I'm, one of the reasons that I'm doing all these podcasts is because I myself have just launched a new podcast called Howie Mandel D- Does Stuff with my lovely daughter, Jacqueline Schultz. So I am in my podcast studio right now. This is all my collectibles. And yes. the, uh, these are things that I've collected. Everything from Bobby's World, uh, deal or no deal uh, machine that you can go see at Dave and Buster's. I also, just to the right of me that y- you cannot see and we're going to be talking about today, the actual seats I performed in front of on The Tonight Show. So when it's not a joke. I'll send you pictures. So there's that that is there. These are things that mean, you know, not only me, but anybody that was anybody performed in front of these seats. They're not reupholstered. And mm. I, that's where I let, if I have guests on the podcast and they want to come here in person, that's where they sit. I got my Bobby's World things. I have my St. Elsewhere things here. I have, you know, it's just the history of me. And uh, I just come in here and sit and just look around the room and think to myself, look what I've done. Look (laughs) what I've done. I think it's a good setting for this type of conversation. Um, So, uh, you know, I want to talk about how you ended up getting on The Tonight Show. And I feel like that story starts with them telling you, you're not going to be on The Tonight Show. Um, it even starts before that. I don't know how many people listening to this uh, know my personal history with comedy. But, mm-hmm. well, April 19th, 1977, to be exact, I went to a comedy club called Yuck Yucks in Toronto. And I went there out of uh, looking for something to do um, because, uh, you know— at, Still at that time, disco was all the rage, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know, like Studio Fifty Four and places like that in New York. And I was not—I'm not a dancer or a drinker or a club goer, and I'm not somebody who is athletic or a gambler. I don't have a poker game with a bunch of friends. I didn't even have a bunch of friends. So I went to a comedy club, and it's the first time I saw stand-up comedy live in Toronto. And Mark Breslin, who is the that was the host and the proprietor of Yuck Yucks at the time. And, and just so you know, Yuck Yucks is a club that uh, uh, birthed, uh, you know, Jim Carrey and Norm MacDonald and a lot of other people came out of uh, that club that you know that are writers and directors and uh, 
you know, I even watched Rick Moranis do stand up on that stage. You know, he wow. was a he was a, a t, um, um, FM DJ at the time, and this is prior to SCTV. And uh, anyway, I I was there, and they said, you know, at the at midnight on Mondays or whatever day it was, we'll take amateurs. You know, people can get up, and the people that I was sitting with said, you should get up, and I went, okay, <laughs> okay. And that's how I am, you know, and I've talked about this mm -hmm. before. I have mental health issues, but I always say yes. And don't think of ramifications, which can be dangerous, but mm -hmm. also it's become my philosophy. I think people overthink things. So, uh, and no aspirations to be a comedian, no aspirations to be on television, not to be famous, not to be anything. I went that ne next Monday night. And if you had to ask me what, the material was going to be, I didn't have, I didn't prepare much like, uh, doing this today. Mm -hmm. I, d I didn't prepare anything. So I showed up thinking the joke is going to be, I got one or two friends in the audience or a friend in the audience and they're going to go, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And then I'm going to walk out and it's going to be me. Like I'm not a comedian and they don't know I'm not a comedian. And that's the joke. That's the extent. I don't think too far in advance. And what happened was, uh, I'll, I'll never forget, He, uh, Mark Bresson went, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And I walk out to a smattering of applause. It's like 12, 15 at night. So a smattering of applause. And then that applause dies down. No, nobody knows who the hell I am. And uh, I don't, I barely know who the hell I am. And I'm standing there with uh, blinded by the spotlight. And then I look down and you could see the front row and there's just people who I don't know or, nor recognize, nor should I. They're just people, patrons, looking up at me like, okay, okay, funny boy, like you were introduced. We, is there anything? And for whatever reason, that realization became uh, terror. And I realized, what the fuck did I just do? I'm standing here in front of these strangers and I got filled with uh, like terror, kind of like, they describe when a, a mom finds her child under a car and has the ability, that energy that goes through, they can mm -hmm. lift the car. I, I remember feeling like this surge of terror and, and I started going, I, I got to come up with things. And I start going, oh, okay, okay, all right, all right, all right. And I'm panicking. I'm actually just really legitimately, authentically panicking. And I'm trying so hard to just think of something and when they were giggling at my discomfort, I didn't really understand because I was also self-conscious and am, you know, pretty. So, so I started going, what, what? No, really, what? What do you laugh? And I started saying things like, oh, come on, don't laugh. It's throwing me off. Please don't laugh, which is funny in itself. It's ironic. Yeah. But it was real and it was in the moment. And, you know, I suffer from OCD and uh, have my whole life. And I, I remember putting one of my hands just out of just being uncomfortable in my pocket. And I felt, oh shit, I got a rubber glove that I carry because I don't want to touch things in a, in a public restroom. Mm -hmm. So I took the rubber glove out and out of, uh, you know, just the need to do something and I had nothing, I pull it over my head and I pull it past my nose. I never done, I had never done that before. And I start breathing and the fingers are going up and down and I can hear the audience is roaring. So I just start inflating it with my nose and it blows up and it pops off my head and they, they go into an, a, a, a spontaneous applause. It pops off 
And I go, good night. I had the wherewithal to go, this is the timing. Leave them on the big laugh. This is timing. And I go, good night. And I walk off the stage and I'm sweating. And, and Mark is there. I've been on for like two and a half, maybe three minutes. And, and Mark Breslin is there. And, and he goes, uh, that was amazing. Come back tomorrow. And I go, for, for what? He goes, you do it again. And I go, do what again? And he goes, do what you did. I go, didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. But I started coming back and showing up at that place. And I promise you, uh, there was no aspiration to do it, but I had found a place of like-minded ne'er-do-wells where I could hang out every night, get free food and drinks, and sit with people who also, education wasn't the most important thing in their lives, and they were just, you know, it, the world of comedy seems like we are misfits, and, you know, so I didn't really have friends, and then I was connecting there was an audience of strangers that were connecting on some level that I didn't really understand, but they were laughing at my discomfort. That style, you then kept on doing different versions as you kept on going. And I was just curious because it's like, I was watching one of your early specials and it's like 90% crowd work. It's like almost no planned material. You're like running all over the place screaming. Well, that's right. And then I came down to LA. I was down on LA, you know, six or seven months after that, what we just talked about. And uh, I was friends with a guy because I met him. The, the real comics from Detroit used to drive up to Toronto mm -hmm. and do sets. And there was a guy by the name of Mike Binder who became a very, you know, uh, a successful director and writer and actor. Inside. Mm -hmm. And he, he became friendly with me. And he said, I can get you on at the comedy store. I was here on other business and being a, t I went on the comedy store and there happened to be a, uh, a producer there by the name of George Foster who was doing a game show called Make Me Laugh. And he goes, are you interested in doing television, young man? When I walked off stage and I went, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm here in Hollywood, just to make it. I thought it was a joke. And he told me to show up at his office the next day. It was my first time ever in a studio, in a, on, a, on a lot. And he hired me right there. He was telling me to make his uh, secretary laugh. And again, I was put in the position of not being prepared, but being really nervous and really uncomfortable. And she started giggling at me and he goes, you're perfect for this. And I went that next day to tape the show. And for those that don't know how syndicated shows tape, you usually will tape five episodes in one day, three before lunch, and then two after lunch. And so we taped those episodes and I went back to Toronto and had a great story. And I was engaged to be married, had a great story to tell about this vacation that I went on. And then as that stuff started airing, I started getting calls from the States. Come on down and do Merv Griffin. Come on down and do Mike Douglas. I did the Merv Griffin show one day and then that aired. And then I got a call from Gene Simmons of Kiss to my house in Toronto. And he goes, this is Gene Simmons of Kiss. I couldn't believe it. And, and he goes, would you be interested in being an opening act for my girlfriend? And I go, okay, okay. Who, who's your girlfriend? And at the time he was living with Diana Ross. Mm -hmm. And so I became her opening act at Caesars Palace in front of that chair that is in my room right now. And then I went back and I said to my fiance at the time, I said, listen, I'm 22, 23 years old. I'm going to give this a shot. Let's go down to California and let's give this a shot. So I was legitimately by seven, the end of 78 or 79, I moved down here and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to try. Mm -hmm. And if not, I can do good in business and we can move back home. What I ended up, I started getting a lot of shows. I was getting, you know, I was doing the Mike Douglas. I was doing Merv Griffin. I was getting great spots at the comedy store. And 
at that time, it was the consensus of the public, if they didn't know you and they walked up to you or somebody said to you, what do you do for a living? And you said, I'm a stand-up comedian. Everybody and anybody of every age, the first question was, have you been on Johnny? Have you been on The Tonight Show? And it doesn't matter what else you've done. I had been doing yeah. television and I was working as a comic and that was the only thing that was paying my rent at the time. If I hadn't been on Johnny, in their minds, I wasn't considered a stand-up comic. And I would imagine the generation before me, it was the same for the Ed Sullivan show. The Ed Sullivan yeah, yeah. show is marked with who put the Beatles and Elvis Presley on the map in the same way the Tonight Show was who put anybody of comedy merit on the on the mm -hmm. so then it became a the goal not only of me i think of any comic alive the one thing if you didn't do anything else with your career the one thing that you would want to do is to be on the johnny carson show nothing else even came close hbo gave me a young comedian special you know, and the young kids that were on mine that we were all we were all trying to make it. It was me and uh, Jerry Seinfeld, who apparently went on to do some other stuff. Richard Lewis, Harry Anderson, and it was hosted by the Smothers Brothers. We did it from the Roxy, and if you look at that, that was really close to those days in 1977 where I had nothing. I was just wearing white scrubs, medical scrubs, and walking around the stage. I'd go, oh, look, there's a bongo drum. Boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. Whatever was in my eyesight or earshot became fodder for nothing. I didn't sit like my fellow comedians and uh, uh, who are amazing wordsmiths. And, and so I had nothing. But yeah. that, that was starting to launch me. And I was starting, even after the Young Comedian special, that was really big at the time. My, my, my life changed and I started playing theaters, you know? And I was selling tickets and um, really quickly, you know? And wherever I went, and, and I started making a really nice living, but I said, I still have not been on The Tonight Show. And I went as far as, you know, the next step would be like everybody in the 70s and the early 80s to get a sitcom. And I went and met with MTM. And they ended up, I was so funny, they put me on a drama. Mm -hmm. They put me on St. Elsewhere with uh, Denzel Washington. I just had to get it. And yeah. I did everything. The only thing, I, now I'm on network television. I've had my own HBO special. I've had everything, everything but The Tonight Show. And every week, Jim McCauley, who was the um, uh, casting person for comedy on The Tonight Show, would be at the comedy store or the improv, wherever he happened to be looking in L.A., to bring on the next new young comic or to go over somebody else's set that had already yeah. been on and give them notes. And he, every time he saw me and I would get on, he'd go, not only am I not going to book you, you're never going to be on the show. And he wasn't being mean. He just said, it's what you do is not what Johnny likes. It's not, you know, we like monologists, we like, uh, you know, people who tell jokes, people who have a point of view. You're just this silly little man who just runs or It's not for us. Did you ever try like, oh, let me try for a week to write material, like to be a comedian that could do that? Like, I imagine there are, other, you know, like anyone, like any comedians, like I need to be on the night show so much. I'm going to do a different act. I've always tried. You know, it was always... Um, it, I'm going to be totally honest with you. It always bothered me um, because I didn't know. I fell into this world 
and uh, more than camaraderie at the time, you know, at the comedy store, it's a very dark time. You know, everybody was fighting and clawing to try to make their way to the top. And in their view, you know, I didn't put a lot of time and work mm -hmm. into it. So I didn't deserve the success that fellow comics saw me getting. So yes, I always tried to calm down. You know, I was getting killed for using a lot of, I had silly props, you know, whatever I bought when I walked into a store, if there was a, a little toy or a bag of candy or, you know, whatever there was, I would just buy, I would just buy everything just even without an idea, just hopefully I would get an idea. You know, I was, I was, uh, this is before I saw prop comics, but also I, I realized that later on and it started hurting me is that prop comics were not even as um, recognized or at yeah. least uh, the, I don't think prop comics even today get the props they deserve and the respect that there's, it's just as hard to come up with a prop or look at a prop and find something to say alongside it and know where to position in your show. People like Caratop, he's making a, a fortune in Vegas and people are, you know, it's all subjective and, uh, but I was getting yeah. killed. So I, by the same token, when he told me I'll never be on, I was starting to get used to, this is before social media, just getting bashed. You know, even when, when Letterman was at his height, I can't tell you how many times I was to my chagrin in the top 10, you know, it was always, and then we're going to force him to go to a Howie Mandel concert. You know what I mean? And that killed me killed me. I just was so embarrassed, so hurt, so destroyed. Yes, no, I mean, I think it's interesting because your style, watching it now, like watch, looking back at it, it feels like there's multiple time periods in comedy where you would have been seen as like avant-garde and interesting because you're just sort of so free-flowing. But the 1980s was the exact time where what you were doing was like the least, which is like everyone was doing such polished acts and then here you are connecting to the audience. Like if you were, if you came up in the fifties, you'd be like seen as interesting because you're improvising. But you know, you know what's interesting? You're absolutely right. Except the dichotomy between uh, you're talking about amongst my peers versus yeah. the audience. There's yeah. a huge dichotomy because I went on that one young comedian special, and I'm selling ten thousand tickets. You know, yeah. and 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 in in a in a place, you know, and and in, uh, at the same time, nobody at the comedy store likes what I'm doing. I'm the joke. I don't deserve it. I don't write. I don't. So it was a like I I was also you know torn between am I funny like am I good? Are people wrong? Yeah. Is this audience wrong? Throughout my career, I'll go I'll go back to this. But I've talked about this before. You know, one of the big momentous uh, moments in my career was, you know, somebody said, you want to play Radio City Music also in the early 80s, around the same time as this clip that you have from The Tonight Show. And I said, yeah. And they put it on sale and it sold out in hours. And then they said, you know, you want to do a second show? I said, well, I don't want to stay uh, away too long from home. So I'll do a second show the same night. So that sold out in hours. So, you know, you're talking about I think it's like 6,500 people or 7,000 people. So it's 14,000 people in one night in New York City. And I was with my wife and we're at the, uh, we're at the Radio City Music Hall in between shows. And uh, my wife 
uh, we look we look out from the dressing room onto Seventh Avenue, and there's seven thousand people walking out of the first show, and seven thousand people just making their way. I had gone a little long, trying to make their way into mm-hmm. the second show. And you look out on Seventh Avenue, and there's fourteen thousand people in the biggest quagmire I've ever seen on a city street. And they've got stanchions in the street, and they have cops, and traffic is fucked up. And and I'm looking out the window. My wife says, "What are you thinking?" this is all for you. I said, well, I'll be honest with, this is what I'm thinking. This city is probably the biggest city in America. One of the biggest, most populated cities in America. There's 10 million people here. What I really see is that 9,986,000 people don't give a shit. Yeah. And that's, those odds aren't really good. Even though she goes, how you always look at the glass half, every comic looks at the glass half empty. So I was chasing the tonight show. Like that was all I, it didn't matter. I was selling out uh, uh, radio city. It didn't matter. I had all these people coming. It didn't matter that I was getting notoriety and I was on a network show. I needed to do the tonight show and I tried every way and I couldn't. And then in 1984, the same year as this clip is from, in 1984, um, Joan Rivers started co-hosting The Tonight Show. And at that time, when she did it, that that was probably the height of her um, notoriety, is filling in for Johnny. She was even getting better ratings than Johnny. Mm-hmm. It was known within the industry, so much so that when they decided to build another network, Fox, you know, she was uh, kind of assigned the uh, the late night that they gave her her own talk show based on they were going to build a whole network based on this was the first time they were going to broadcast into late night. And they gave that to her. That's how, you know, how much of a force she was at the time. I will also tell you that at the time, you know, the tonight, any time you walked into the comedy store in the early 80s and the late 70s. I mean, it was the epicenter of everything comedy. You'd watch Rodney Dangerfield fly in from New York and try out the set that he was going to do on The Tonight Show that week. And, you know, I'd see Johnny doing sets Mm -hmm. because he was playing the weekend. He was going to play at Sahara in, in, in Vegas. So everybody, anybody who was anybody was in that room at any given time. And when she became the kind of the, the major fill in for Johnny, Joan Rivers would come in regularly throughout the year and work on her monologues that she was going to do that following week. So I don't know what came over me, but I said to uh, Mitzi Shore, who was the owner of the comedy store, I said to Mitzi, I'm going to give it another shot. Is there any way, Joan's coming in this week and she's coming in at nine on Thursday. Uh, Can you put me on like at the 8.55 spot, the five minutes before? So she's you know, they'll be running behind. She'll get there for a time. She'll definitely see me. I don't know if this is can do anything for me or not, but it's just another set of eyes on me that could be on me. And Mitzi was nice enough to do that. And this was going to be my, uh, I couldn't think of any other strategy and this strategy came to me. And this is the most important strategy of my career because without the Tonight Show, regardless if I was talking to you today, I don't think, well, you wouldn't have that clip. And, yeah. but I also think that tonight show did more for me than any one show. So, um, that Thursday comes and I wake up in the morning and I am so sick. I like probably the sickest I've been. I don't, I don't remember ever feeling that sick since, 
you know? And uh, I had a fever of probably 103. And, uh, you know, when you have a fever and I've got those chills and I'm shaking and I'm sick and in any other circumstance, I would, you know, just throw in the flag and just say, I can't, I can't function. I can't function today. And I said, well, maybe hopefully this will pass or the fever will break before five o'clock or six o'clock or seven o'clock. I got to go. And I'm lying there the whole day. It comes, it's about 7.30. I'm not any better than I was. And I said, I'm going to give it a shot. My wife's going, you're an idiot. It's not that important. You're doing well. We're paying the rent. You're doing okay. You don't go out with 103 fever and you don't drive. But I got in the car and I'm driving through Laurel Canyon, you know, which is this windy road in LA. I can barely focus. I I thought I was going to die, not from the fever, but I was going to drive the car off the road. That's how dizzy I was. And I get to the comedy store and I get there about 20 minutes before I'm supposed to go on and I can barely even stand. I go to the back of the room and I'm leaning against the room. People are walking over saying, what's wrong? Because I I have beads of sweat coming down. I haven't done anything. I'm just leaning against the wall and I've got all these sweat and I think my eyes are at half mast. And uh, I see over on the left, uh, Joan Rivers comes in the room. She's about to go. So they're a little behind schedule and I'm going on next. And somebody goes, ladies, she just walked in the room. They go, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And I walk up and I, I think this happens to every performer, but for whatever reason, adrenaline kicked in. And I didn't feel the fever and I did what I did and it was great. And it, the, the crowd was roaring and I thought, oh my God, this is, I, this is like one of the best sets, most energetic sets I've had in years. And I say, good night. And I have to introduce the next, you know, the next guest. And I go, ladies and gentlemen, keep your hands going, keep your applause going for Miss Joan Rivers. And they go crazy. And as I walk off the, the stage, you know, we have to walk through the audience and the next person hitting the stage, just, you know, you rub shoulders with the guys. So Joan is walking toward me. I'm walking off the stage toward her. And as she passes, you know, the audience is waiting for her to come to stage. She just puts her hand on my shoulder. She goes, very funny, young man. You are so funny. And I go, thank you. But she has to continue walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She gets on the stage and I go, oh, she saw me. She liked me. I got to engage her for a moment. I got to engage her for a moment. So I start watching her act and she's killing and doing great, but I start to get sick. I feel like the adrenaline is going, is flowing away and the fever is coming up again. And I am getting like so like ill, so ill that I was afraid that I might pass out. So I went outside if uh, the comedy store in LA is on Sunset Boulevard and it used to be a famous restaurant called Ciro's and the, um, Original room is where she was, which is the room that faces out the window. The back of your your ass is facing on Sunset Boulevard, and you mm-hmm. come down these stairs onto Sunset Boulevard. So I come through the curtains that are the entrance, and I go on the stairs. I can't even stand. I'm leaning against the wall, and I'm sliding down the wall. Now I'm just sitting on the stairs out on that lead out into Sunset Boulevard in, in Hollywood, and I'm just sweating. And it, like everybody who's walking down or going, are, are you okay? You know, they they notice that, but I'm just hoping like in a couple of minutes, if I could just make eye contact with her and just say something and maybe this will be good. But she gets off stage to a huge roar and then I, I don't see her. And I guess she's talking to Mitzi and she's talking to uh, other comedians and she's spending time in the room. It's not like she's got a rush. She lives in New York. Where's she going to go anyway? Mm-hmm. It seemed like hours. And I, I thought I was going to lose consciousness. And then finally, after what seemed like an eternity, she comes through those curtains. She's walking down the stairs and I'm lying on the stair. 
And she says, um, oh, you're so funny. I said, well, thank you. And she just said to me, have you ever been on The Tonight Show? And I said, this month is my birthday. And she said, well, call Billy Samoth. She gave me his number. And Billy Samoth was her uh, her manager. And I called him and said, you know, she saw me. He told me, he goes, can you do it Thursday? So I thought, <laughs> oh, my gosh, it's come true. So I yeah. went on that Thursday. It was like at the beginning of November or it was, it was at the, in October. I can't remember exactly when it, when it was. I went on and I had a really good set. And you know what? I was in the studio, Johnny Carson's studio. Doc Severinsen was there. Ed McMahon was there. I heard the music. You know, I made it. This was going to yeah. be as good as it gets. I didn't expect anything else. I went out there. I love uh, Joan Rivers and have loved her ever since and miss her dearly. She was really probably the most instrumental other person in show mm -hmm. business that helped me along. And she gave me that shot. And I went home and I was just thrilled. That morning, the following morning, Jim McCauley, I was still in bed sick, called me and said, uh, Johnny saw you on with uh, Joan. Would you mind coming back next week and doing it with him? Would you him? mind? Yeah. Would I mind? Yeah. Uh, yes. I thought I was having those fever dreams. I didn't mm -hmm. think it was real. And I went back uh, the following week and I did, I figured, you know, I've been told so long that this was not a place for me. This is not a place where anybody would enjoy what I do. And for the first time, I planned to do something it was a plan mm -hmm. uh, because Jim McCauley was um, fastidious. What I learned since is that the segment producers, if they, if there's an, if there's a guest booked on these talk shows as a comedian or somebody that's supposed to be entertaining, if it if it falls flat and it's not entertaining, they get the wrath of it. They have to show up every day. They go, why the hell would you book Howie Mandel? That wasn't funny at all. I can't get that six minutes back in my life. I can't unhear all the crap he said. And, you know, I don't hear it. I just know that I don't get booked yeah. back. So I kind of understand where people like Jim McCauley and other people that do the same kind of thing come from. But I showed up on that first one. It was also the most... Um, hands-on kind of pre-interview mm. on The Tonight Show at the time. And there are a couple of shows that I won't mention right now that do kind of the same thing. They go, well, what we want to ask you this question. What's your answer going to be? What's the last line of that answer so that we mm. can, uh, you know, Johnny knows what it is. So I would tell them these funny stories. And I didn't have, you know, I didn't think I was interesting, uh, interesting enough to interview. So I was going to do sit down comedy with him. And they were all things from my act, but how could we lead into that? Yeah. So I knew I was really scared because it was more like a script, right? I knew what order the questions were going to come in. I knew what jokes I was going to do or what the answers would be, except for one, which I didn't, I knew that if I told John and, and I wanted, I, I understood now that my, um, the, the, my persona was one of silliness, but reckless abandon where I didn't have control of what I was doing and mm -hmm. didn't know where I was doing. And it would just happen. I knew that. And I said, I, I feel like having done this pre-interview, I feel like it's so scripted and so stiff that it's not going to work for me. So I got to do one thing. And I said, I've spent the last 
you know, five years, I had been in the business five years, you know, uh, trying to get on the tonight show and being turned down and told I'm not right for it. So I've gotten on the tonight show and now I'm definitely going to do Johnny. I don't care if I ever do another one. I really don't. I just gotta, on this platform, I gotta be me. Yeah. Which is a great idea for a song. But anyway, uh, I planned this thing. I did all my material and I feel like it was out of this world. I didn't know. And then when I got up to Nerve and Jim McCauley, I could see it out of the corner of my eye because he would stand behind Fred de Cordova, who was the executive producer who was sitting at the end of the couch. There's a chair. There's a whole couch of guests and, and Ed McMahon and then the executive producer and the segment producer stands behind the, you know, coaching mm -hmm. his team. I'm his team now. I'm on. And it was, I pulled out these uh, cardboard uh, 3D glasses and I said to Johnny, uh, you ever wear these 3D glasses? Do you like 3D movies? He goes, I do. I go, this is amazing. Try these on. And Johnny Carter, I hand them to Johnny and Johnny tries on the 3D glasses. And then I go, this is amazing. And I took out a stuffed animal from my handbag, which was shaped like a hand. And I whipped it really hard at his face. Not looking at Freddie de Cordova, not looking at anything. It seemed like an eternity from the time that little fuzzy animal hit Johnny Carson's forehead and nose to, I thought, am I watching my career end? It's been four years. It's been fun. This has been a dare. I, I followed through with the dare. We can all go home now. And then Johnny broke into laughter. And I said, doesn't it look like it's coming right at you? And I got him. Yeah. I got him. And that was the moment that I felt comfortable, so much so that I got a call the next day and he said, come back and we'll, we, we'd love to have you again in two and a half weeks. And that is the clip that you played. That's and my now, now we're here at the moment. I mean, it's amazing because you have to imagine in his head, in that second, he's like, who's this kid? Do I admire these balls or do I feel challenged by it? And he's like, you know, that's pretty funny. Like you have to imagine like the wheel spinning of him deciding. No, I did. And and I can't, I, you know, I have a, a, a history of doing these things. And then I got barred from doing it with Johnny again, because I always did. I got barred from doing the David Letterman show. Uh, I, I ended up going back, but I think I was off for like 12 years because I would do these things that are me. Yes. But I also understand now, maybe it comes with maturity you know, ultimately, Johnny, David, all the Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, this is a job, you know, day in and day out. And if I'm coming on to throw them a curveball, it could go either way. It makes it refreshing and fun because everything's planned and easy, yeah. or it's just an uncomfortable moment that they don't need. It doesn't make or break their show. And if they don't want these uncomfortable moments, then they can go, screw Howie Mandel, let's not have him back. And that happened a lot. We'll be right back with more Howie Mandel. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long, just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high-quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. 
reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long, just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. And we're back with Howie Mandel. So... For the clip we play, so it's like, when you would then be approached for a set, would you just be like, here's material? I How would you sort of like build it out? Like, did you like, how can I go through the props? You know, in this, you you, you have a shopping bag. So you're like, oh, I went to the Malta. Yes. And then I would come up with an order and I would come up with an order. But again, I'd always leave a little bit of a secret. So I said, you know, the whole thing is I'm going to shop. I'll come out with these glasses on. You know, and that was uh, the joke where I removed the glasses and the nose stayed on. I can, I can start with that, and then he should ask me like, "What, what is, what, what is with all this?" And then I'll do three or four prop gags that I have in the bag, and then I'll put down the bag. I'm only carrying the bag to block another prop that I have on my shirt. You yeah. know. Now, I told him I had that prop on my shirt and I knew the, you know, and what is that from? And I got it from a toilet seat and I did that joke. I knew that. What I didn't tell them was I got the special effects person from um, St. Elsewhere to mm-hmm. rig a little uh, smoke bomb in yeah. there. So I don't think they knew that. So coming back from commercial, I always wanted, they got comfortable with knowing that you know, 99% of everything that I said, did, and what they saw was there, but I'd always have one little hidden gem that was for me. That's so interesting because there's the thing watching it where just like, you don't know when you're going to be telling the truth, when you're going to be getting into a bit, when, and like what he's prepared for, what he's not prepared for. It really is um, an interesting experience of like, it's like herky-jerky of like, he's catching up. He knows what it's in. It's it really like, I feel like you watch old Carson clips and there's like a patter pace that you, you expect. And there's not that with you whatsoever. With, not with me. And you know, that has always been my, you know, I, when I was younger, I was not analytical about what I was doing and what, what it works, but why it worked and why, what clicked, clicked and why, what didn't click, didn't click. And it came from my talk show, um, experiences. And this is a perfect clip of, of me doing what I do, you know, and, and what I do is now I can articulate, I wouldn't have told you then, but I wanted to remain authentic, you Mm -hmm. know, and if I'm going to act 
like, and that's why, you know, even today and even in this discussion, th there was times where I would have a discussion offline. We didn't have podcast then, but if I went on somebody's radio show, I didn't know what they were going to, and I still felt, okay, okay, here's what I did. And I'd have to throw in mm. some, but that fear was real. When that fear is gone, I can't act like that fear is real. So the fact that you didn't know what was real and what wasn't was exactly what I wanted. So much so that, you know, as I started uh, doing more and more of these, specifically the Johnny Carson appearances, I was getting in trouble at St. Elsewhere. St. Elsewhere was saying to me, you have to stop going on Carson and you have to stop touring as a comedian. And I would say, why? And they'd say, um, well, I think it's hurting the integrity of the character that you're playing on, you know, I'm playing a doctor, I'm playing Dr. Fiscus. Yeah. It's hurting the integrity. And I can't tell you how many people, you know, my audience was so split. There were the people that knew me from HBO and followed me onto The Tonight Show and watched me do whatever I did there. There was an audience that watched St. Elsewhere. I can't tell you how many letters I got in the early 80s that, you know, I have a bet with my husband that Dr. Fiscus is not the same goofball that blows a glove up on his head, you know? But they they were sure it wasn't the same. Yeah. It wasn't the same. Just like they were sure that, the, you know, the guy that was standing with Bobby at the beginning of Bobby's world wasn't the same guy from St. Elsewhere or wasn't the same as the HBO comic special that they they had seen. There were did, very different characters, but I was did, acting more on St. Elsewhere than I was in stand-up yeah. comedy. Do you think playing a doctor made you either lean into it or just enjoy, you know, there's a lot of jokes, and I say this with love, that are stupid here. You're, the joke is how absurdly stupid you are, exactly. right? It's like you're on the escalator. Like, do you enjoy, do you feel like you're like, the, the contrast of your public image is, is so built into what is so funny here. Right. And, you know, I am silly and I like silly. And that's why it's funny because it's silly. As soon as you start analyzing it, then it's not, you know, analyzing silly is not funny. But I thought it, I find that funny. That personally, listen, I've always talked about how if you go to a, a comedy club and you see a stand-up comic on stage, people say there's nothing more painful than to watch, go to an amateur night and watch somebody just go into the toilet so hard. It's just so awkward and so uncomfortable. But my thought to that is, you know, nobody is there under their own fruition. You know, somebody's there because, you know, their uncle Nate said, oh, you're so funny. The way you do grandma and the way you're able to stick two peas up your nose, you got to go to a comedy club because you're, you're, you're just a, a laugh riot. And th so these people show up. I think it's luck. Luck. You know, yeah. there's skill involved. But the luck is that whatever your sensibility is or whatever makes you smile makes a few more people than just your family smile and laugh. So I'm lucky that I find silliness funny. I just knew that it was silly and it's making me laugh. And these things come to you without ever um, a thought. You know, the things you say accidentally or the things um, children say and think, you know, without their interpretation, which became yeah. a big part of what Bobby's world was. So throughout my career, the things that have um, resonated as more, as real and not thought out, and I think authenticity is what reigned. And that's what it was. I was always excited to be there, more excited, yeah. and showed that excitement, never tried to act cool and comfortable. If I was cool and comfortable, I couldn't pretend to act scared. I love thrill rides. 
and I love the roller coaster. And the scarier it is, the higher it is, the closer to death you think it is, the more I enjoy it, you know? And it makes me feel alive and brings me into the now. So even on this clip that we just watched, I also had embedded a smoke machine, which yeah. number one, I don't know how much smoke is going to be released. Number two, I didn't call a uh, fire uh, department because you have to have, you know, I don't know if I would get in trouble for doing that or I'd set off fire alarms. I also didn't know if it would burn me. You know, I didn't know. So sitting there, that's the underlying, everything preceding that, that smoke coming back from the commercial, that's all that's in my head. Holy shit, I'm getting closer and closer. Am I going to set myself on fire on live TV? You know, what is going to, are they going to throw me out? Part of watching you, it's like, yes, what you're doing is funny, but it's also funny imagining a person who thinks this is funny. You're like, right. It's like, you're like, it's funny that smoke's happening, but it's also funny that you're like, you did this. What a person would do this. It's like, there's a sort of true eccentric quality to you that like, it marries... You know, on especially like the Tonight Show at that time, you'd have comedians, but you'd also have sort of, I don't know what you would call them, like eccentrics, odd. Well, you know, people. It, in, in, it, you're exactly right, and that's what I turned on to. You know, and ad nauseum, I've been getting in trouble for years, for eleven years now, on America's Got Talent for that, because mm -hmm. I am a fan of authentic quirkiness. And in my era growing up, you know, the, the, the best, the highest rated Tonight Show ever was Tiny Tim's Wedding. Mm -hmm. I love Tiny Tim. And yes, he's an eccentric. I'm not making fun of him. He, he knew he was out front and he knew what he was doing. But in this day and age, there aren't that many uh, people that were celebrating their character. Mm. You know, you know, and, and that's why I wanted to be as close to real as possible. And if I was going to be scared, you know, and I had these big, the overlying joke, which I repeated many times in different ways of this particular set was to set myself on fire and then pretend like I don't want to talk about it. I just, that's nothing. It just happens. So as big as I can get, in fact, that was the joke that got me thrown off ever doing it with Carson again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've done Carson 20 plus times at this point. 21. 21. You always come with a certain amount of plan. But one time they they called you on short notice and were like, can you just do it? We need somebody. You had nothing planned. You didn't want to do it. And then you did what? So I said to Jim, because he was impeccable at breaking every, I said, I don't even have time to go over a set with you. So he goes, I'm trusting you this time. This is Sammy Davis Jr. had just canceled. This is with the day he got diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. He, uh, so I was working on a movie and I went into the prop shop at the studio and they had like a 30-foot uh, saber-toothed tiger, fake saber-toothed tiger. I said, put that on a pallet with rollers and deliver it to Burbank. And I saw a giant carrot there for whatever reason, another prop. I said, could you tie that on top? And he goes, okay. And then I called Jim and I said, you know, there's a saber toothed tiger and a giant carrot coming. Please accept the delivery. He goes, well, what are you going to do with it? I said, I don't know. And it's because I had nothing. And it was just the joke that I had done with the smoke. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it basically was the same joke. And the thing was, and, and I thought, I'm just going to just 
get as extreme as I can. I'll push as far as I possibly can because that's funny. Because I think things are funny and then you push them a little bit and then it's not funny. It's enough already. But then if you push even past that, it's go, are you kidding? He's yeah. still going with this? So it's like if you if you want to do something where it's committing, you really have to commit. And that's the hardest thing to do on live television. So I, I went there and Johnny said, this guy's always funny. Ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And he opens the curtain. They page the curtain and I come through pulling this, this thing. And then I take it over to the, the desk and the, the desk and the set are on a riser. And I'm trying to get the front paws up on the riser. I can't, I have uh, Ed help me lift the paws up. And then I'm trying to push it further on and I go around to the backside. It's silence. It's an eternity. It's two minutes of. Do you think you're being funny in that moment? Like in that moment, are you like, this is going exactly as planned? Or do you start panicking actually a little bit more than you normally panic. Uh, that panic is always there. I'll tell you what it is. It's kind of like if you're going to uh, detonate a building like and, and, and bring down a building, I would imagine you've lit the wick, Yeah. you know? So I'm in that thing where you're just waiting in anticipation because it's now silent. I'm sweating. The, the, the natural thing is just to dive out now and just go, I'll just leave yeah. it there and let me sit down. And I do have some prepared jokes and let me just get out of it. You want to get out of it. And I'm always just fighting myself going, Howie, longer, longer. I know this is horror. I know it's probably horror at home. And you got to know that 30, if I said, let's sit quietly right now for 30 seconds, that would seem like an eternity, yeah, yeah, especially yeah, yeah. on an audio show, but on a TV show, even more, right? Yeah. And I see Johnny looking at me because nobody's been briefed. Nobody knows what's happening. And I have Doc Severinsen pushing it. And I can hear, he pushes it up on the island with me, on the, on the riser with me. And you can hear uh, everybody's headsets from the floor director to the camera going, you hear the director going, fuck, all right, move that, move that camera. One. All of a sudden cameras are moving all over. They're trying to get an overhead shot of Johnny. After what seems like an eternity, I sit down, sweating. He's tapping his pencil. He goes, well, I go, well, it's good to be here. He goes, what about that? Pointing at the saber-toothed tiger. I go, I don't want to talk about it. And to me, that was the only joke. I got a lot of mail and people loved it. But in the studio, he didn't love it. Uh, he forced me to do a little more material, and I did a little more material. I was supposed to do two segments. I think I only did one. And what happened is he threw the commercial, and they removed the saber-toothed tiger. He made no eye contact with me, and then they brought on whoever was next. And they, he never talked to me again. And I was told by Jim, you could do the show, but not with Johnny. So after that, I did it with Shandling, and I did it with whoever filled yeah. in, but I never did it with Johnny again. It is funny in retrospect. I have no idea what it'd be like to be Johnny Carson, but like, it's even funnier, I guess, that it didn't work. But you can imagine, especially not being prepped, he know, like he knows this is, no one has agreed to this. So he right. doesn't, where every other time he's like, I've been told there's a payoff. So like when you're doing something, he can sit in it because you know. But when you're doing it this time, it's like, I don't know there's going to be a payoff. And then you do the joke to undercuts it. And he's like, and hit his head, you probably like, oh, you completely wasted my time. This is exactly what I did not want to happen. Right. I've wasted the time. And that 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 silence, I also, um, I'm much more analytical than people think I am. So what doesn't play on stage sometimes plays at home. And yeah. I imagined sitting at home, you know, I, I, I also imagine when things went bad on The Tonight Show or on TV, 
to me, those were the most buzzworthy moments. Yeah. You know, I did it once to Letterman too, and he didn't. Where, where I was in New York, and I went to Letterman, and I said halfway through the interview, I said, you know, I'm really excited about coming here and doing your show, and it's not to do your show. I love you, David, but it's not to do your show. It's, uh, I like New York. I have a friend in New York uh, here that lives in New York. So this is a great opportunity. Do you mind if I say hi to my friend? And he said, go ahead. So I left. Yeah. And that was it. That was it. That was it. And that was it for me on the Letterman show for like 12 years. I left. I went to go say hi to my friend, thinking that this would be a great. So I always took those chances, and those are just chances that were in the moment. You know, in hindsight, the joke wasn't worth not being there for 12 years. Yeah, it's yeah. for nothing. And the truth is that 90% of what I do is for just me. Yeah, I mean, I I was listening to your podcast, and your daughter was talking about how you would do prank phone calls for yourself. Just like- All the time. And is, you know, you, you, you talk about, you've talked about having OCD. Is there like a compulsive aspect to it? Like is creating comedy part of the coping? Is it how you're. Maybe. I mean, that's, that's a little deeper than I personally go, but, but the, the truth of the matter is, and I've talked about this before, you know, my, as far as I can remember, I've had issues. Yeah. My entire life, but. You know, I come from a really good home that was incredibly supportive and everything. And the and, and the bright spots of my upbringing are always laughter. You know, and my uh, parents, both of them, had a, an amazing sense of humor. The first recollection I have of being joining into the party was on Sunday night. We're watching um, Candid Camera, and Alan Funt, who was the original host, and it, that started on radio. Um, would explain to us, this is, to me, this was like the first surprise party I've ever been invited to. He would explain, I'm sitting there with my parents and he'd explain, I'm going to pretend I'm a boss and we're going to hire receptionists and I'm going to tell them the most important thing that they have to do is answer the phone. They can't miss a phone call. You know, I'm going to be leaving and that's my bread and butter. What they don't know is we've attached a rope to the leg of the, uh, desk and it goes through to another room. And when the phone rings, when they go reach for the phone, we're going to pull the rope and the desk is going to slide itself across the room so they can't reach the phone. Watch what happens. So now they've kind of explained to me what's going to happen. And you've got that exciting anticipation that you have when you go to a surprise party and everybody's hiding in the living room and they go, he's coming up the driveway now. He's coming up the driveway now. You know that, that kind of, I remember looking back at my parents and they were going, oh, this is going to be fun. The first phone rings, the lady goes to reach for it. They pull the rope, the desk goes away, her jaw drops, she's horrified. And I, that was the most guttural laugh I've ever had. Like it just exploded. I turned back to my, we were just laughing hysterically, right? We didn't, we expected it. And from that moment on, I have, my mission in life is always recreating that moment. I, and I didn't understand that you had to have a television show, you had to have an audience. I wasn't thinking it, of it as a career. I just wanted to get engaged, yeah, uh, humanity. And and it was also uh, here's the other thing. I always have fear. I'm always neurotic and uh, and and uncomfortable, and that's what I kind of relate to. So mm. whenever I could create that. And I did in school and everything I've ever been punished for, expelled for, gotten in trouble for is what I get paid for today. I find that 
funnier. You know, there's an adage in comedy. If you could just make one person laugh, you're doing your job. That one person I've been making laugh for the last 45 years has been me, you know, and me first. It's interesting you say that, like, you you like creating discomfort and it seems to stem from your own discomfort. What is it about creating that in other people? Do you feel like it gets them on your level? You're like, okay, now finally we're all sort of feeling the same. Like, even in the Johnny interviews, there's moments where he clearly doesn't know how to react. You know, I always say I'm comfortable with discomfort. That's my comfort space. You know, laughing to me... I think most people don't have a sense of humor or share the same sense of humor, you know? And when you go up to somebody and you go, you want to hear a joke? This is a really funny joke. That's a joke, you know? And two guys walked into the bar. Well, they didn't. And if they did, you don't know them and you weren't there. And maybe this is your interpretation of what happened. And then there's a rhythm. It's like a song. And when I finish talking, you're supposed to go, (laughs) that was really funny. Whereas there is nothing that is as... um, tactile as that, mm. just that moment that we all have, you know, we all talk about a shared experience of a, a dream. Have you ever had that dream where you, you show up at a party and you're in your underwear, you know, maybe you didn't have something exactly like that, but you're not comfortable. And we all feel like fish out of water. So I find it fascinating and mm. kind of, uh, um, comforting to know that I'm not the only one in the room. That's awkward, that I'm not the only one that's uncomfortable and that I have some control, <laughs> you know, yeah. not that I'm, you know, and uh, whether it is, I don't, I don't understand it. And I, you'd have to ask my therapist more than sure. me why I need it. But rather than a, listening a, a laugh, if I've created a whole scene and I'm in control and I know where it's going and everybody else doesn't really understand what's going on. And I always say it's always better. Like even when I post online, the people go hysterical. But or or they'll they'll write hysterical in the comments to me when they're explaining to me why what I did wasn't correct and having mm-hmm. no concept that I was kidding or I'm really serious about it or it's uh, a joke. I think you get at something that I find that the dichotomy of you that I find so interesting, which is you have part of you that is like this reckless abandon, and then you have the part of you that like wants to have some amount of control over these things and. And do you, you know, I, I you mentioned how you might not feel necessarily comfortable at parties. Um, and I was talking to Brian Regan, a comedian, a few weeks ago. I know Brian. Who, yeah. So he was talking about, he, you know, he was recently diagnosed with OCD. And he's talking about, like, people see a comedian and they're like, oh, I bet he's so funny at a party. And very often comedians don't feel comfortable at parties because they, there's not a sort of clear way of the social interaction isn't as clear. There's something about... Um, how comedians respond to sort of ordered types of communication. Like, oh, I know the rules of this type of thing. When you're doing Carson, is it always a sort of balance of like, do you feel in control when things are chaotic? Is that like your, does that feel more safe than if it was a measured interview? Well, thank you. This has been a good, <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I didn't realize why you've just analyzed it and I'm, I'm agreeing with you because on everything that I do and whether I'm doing Ellen today or whether I'm doing, there's always, you know, I always need one iota of the segment to be me, to be, yeah. no, it's all me, but to be something that they're not aware of or to do it in a different way that has been proposed or to come off a little bit different, but 
it's always forgiven because in the moment it's just live. And, you know, I tried to do that, but it came out this way. You know, I just need, I just need to feel a lot. It's, it's my way of, um, staying in the now, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it is my, uh, I need to be in the now. If I live any other place, but now I'm a mess mentally. And, uh, you know, I always tell people, you know, that the, the only thing that exists that really exists is the, is now the, I mean, my record, we're talking about things that happened in the past. Well, it's my perception of how it happened. You may watch it and see it totally differently. It's my memory. It's just a, mm. a thought. It, and, and from my perspective, which nobody else had, it's only my perspective. Everything is only from your perspective. In the future, these are things that I hope will happen or I think might happen if I do this, but they don't. The only thing that's real is now. And the only place that I could live comfortably is now. As soon as my mind wanders and worries about the future or thinks about what might have happened in the past and how it was perceived, I, mm-hmm. I'm miserable. So the only, it, for me, it's my happiness. It's my, it's my um, comedy has become my therapy. It's been really hard during COVID because I didn't realize how much I needed that connection. In 45 years of doing stand-up comedy, the longest up until this year I was ever off stage was two and a half weeks. And now, uh, now, you know, even if I do these things on Zoom or we do these virtual concerts, it's not the same as having a room in front of you, you know, yeah. just a real people where you can see their eyes and you can see, and that's connecting with humanity. And it kind of informs me and informs everything I do, whether I'm an actor, whether I'm judging, whether I'm, you know, just being interviewed, just it, it's my connection to humanity. And I need that and I need to be in the now. So I've al- I always need to kind of find a moment, you know, every time you perform or every waking moment is like walking on a tightrope for me. And so is every performance. And I got to find one place just to walk with no net, just that one place, everything else, these pre-interviews are safety nets. You know, you always have something to talk about. You're always going to go. I just need to remove that net for a moment. And otherwise I don't feel alive. Otherwise you just get complacent and you fall off the rope. Yeah. You know, you started talking about um, struggling with OCD later in life, partly didn't seem like it was on purpose. You know, over the last 20 years in comedy, people have been much more accepting to hear people talk about issues more explicitly. You know, I, I think in the past, comedians would be like, oh, I struggle and sort of abstract. And then you, you see sort of the manifestation of their struggle opposed to them talking about it. As you've talked more explicitly about the things you deal with opposed to just sort of like portraying yourself as maybe more eccentric has that 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 also make you feel more connected to the audience do you feel like that has informed people on the sort of character that they've always seen yes is the short answer but to make a short story longer um i think that being public about you know your struggles and issues uh kind of opens up a door for other people to come forward and then go and say me too you know, and when that happens, that has given me, I feel more connected to the audience and they have informed me that they feel more connected to me Mm. and they kind of understand, you know, in in discussions like you and I are having, you know, 
the there is something behind the there is a method to my madness you know and there is i'm not just this goofy guy who set a shirt on fire on carson but yeah. i had a, i had a reason for doing it and there was a lot of thought that went into it and a lot of uh preparation and a lot of uh, angst you know and nervousness and in my mind uh, you know everything from uh you know uh professional failure to uh, some personal failure. You know, I could have been burned. I could have set off an a lot, you know, there was so, there's so much fear involved, but to me, that was my roller coaster ride, you know? <laughs> it's now time for our final segment. It's called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because this is comedy, I call it a laughing round. I see um, what you did there. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Do you have a favorite joke joke, like a street joke? A favorite joke. Um, well, it was the, uh, I did that movie, The uh, the Aristocats. The Aristocrats. Aristocrats yeah. The Aristocrats. Uh, and that was one of my favorite jokes ever. And it was a joke on a joke, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why that was fun. Um, can you uh, explain the difference or lack of difference between your gizmo voice and your Bobby voice? Well, it's, and it, it goes one step further. So I started on uh, Muppet Babies. I was Skeeter. Mm -hmm. So Skeeter, Skeeter was this. Right. And then I started doing Bobby's World. And Bobby is this. Is he Skeeter? Is he Bobby? And then when I did Gizmo, he went, <laughs> which is, so there's, there's <laughs> Bobby. Bobby, Skeeter, Gizmo. Absolutely no difference. And the thing is, one voice, three jobs. I think that's called amortizing. Yes. Well done. Um, can you tell a short story about a legendary comedian living or dead? Um, the shortest story I have or the, the one that kind of moved me the most was Richard Pryor. You know, yeah. getting on stage every night, cobbling together what eventually became Live on the Sunset Strip, which I think was, you know, the, the kind of informed raw for Eddie Murphy and everything Chappelle did and everything I do. And and he was, he had just uh, got out of the hospital for freebasing. He was mm -hmm. bandaged. He was on stage doing, I don't know if people remember the joke, that's another era, but, you know, he got burned and he ran down the street and there was a joke where you lit a match and then you held up the match and you had the match going boop, 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 boop down the street. You'd go, what is this? And you go, this is Richard Pryor running down the street. You're moving the match, right? Mm -hmm. You know where the first place I saw that? Richard Pryor did it on stage. Went, this is me running down the street. Then everybody was doing it and became yeah, like yeah. an old joke. <laughs> but to see him do it with the bandages of the burn still on his neck was That's unbelievable. kind of eye-opening. Um, do you have a joke or a bit that um, you tried, let's say, multiple times, but never worked. But you keep, you will always remember, it's like, that was funny. Maybe everyone else was wrong, but this was a thing definitely that was funny to this one person. I know you've done a lot of examples of that, but can you think of another joke that you tried that you'll go to your grave being like, the audience never got it, but that's one that I still believe in? I had that a lot. Um, yeah, I know. No. Like, that's like one of your main things. That's what, what am I? No, those I meant not to get a laugh from. Um, Fair. I used to do this thing. Um, I think it's actually in one of my specials. And, you know, this is where before goalposts were moved, you know, when we could 
do things, but I used to do, um, I had a little uh, doll that I used to, uh, let me, I'm looking at my, I have material right here. So mm -hmm. let's see. Um, it's usually ends up being politically incorrect. Sure. Um, Rich, can you remember something that I always thought was funny that the audience never did? The baby? Should I tell that story? I used to have a little baby doll, and I'd go, um, what would I say about it? I'd say, Rich is here. Let me. He was telling me, because I remember I tried it over and over and did it in a special. My wife told me to take it out. What was it? Just how cute it was. Oh, I had this cute little baby doll. And I go, look at the little baby doll. Look at this. this is. And it's amazing what the technology is. You just take it and you take its head. And then I would grab it by the legs and I would, boom, smash the head against the, the mic. And the audience would be going, whoa. And I go, this is amazing. You just smash it in the head and it goes into a, a coma. And, 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 and the audience would, and this is what I was going for. And it was very violent. And the audience would just go, oh, oh, no. <laughs> I really appreciate you talking to me. This is Thank you. fascinating. Thank you so much. That's it for another episode of Good One. Stream Howie Mandel Does Stuff wherever you get podcasts. Follow Howie Mandel on social media at Howie Mandel. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrigashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.